Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 303. Today is Sunday, the 18th of November, 2018. And this interview is with Doug Stevens. Doug is the founder of Retail Profit and is one of the world's foremost retail industry futurists. Prior to Retail Profit, Doug had 20 years in retail. He's a powerful speaker, retail columnist for CBC Canada, and also penned two respected books on retail. In this conversation with Doug, we focused our discussion on Amazon, following his provocative article in Business of Fashion entitled The End of Amazon. We look at how Amazon is doing, parallax blind spots, the purchase of Whole Foods, retail brands, and we explore how the future of Amazon and retail could look. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss branding and all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host, and you'll find the show notes on my eponymous site, MinterDial.com. Enjoy the show. So, Doug Stevens, it's great to have you on the show. I, I, um, I came across you through an article in Business of Fashion where you were decidedly unhappy with the long-term prospects of Amazon. And since that's a topic that and a viewpoint that I share with not necessarily the same insights, I struck up and was fascinated to find out more about all your talks and your perspectives, which uh, is is uh, something I'll hopefully I'll send everybody on in the show notes to go check out because you are obviously at the cutting edge of retail and talk a lot about the future of retail with your retail profit company. And you work with lots of really great companies. And uh, anyway, so uh, maybe in your words, how would you describe yourself? Um, well, um, I'll give you I'll give you the the short story. How's that? Go for it. Um, so uh, my name is Doug Stevens, and I'm the founder of Retail Profit. Retail Profit is a consultancy that focuses squarely on the future of retail, and we really do that by building a perspective from the intersection of economics, demographics, technology, and media, and how forces in each of those areas are fundamentally changing consumer behavior, how that behavior is likely to manifest itself in the future, and what brands and retailers can do about it. Prior to starting Retail Profit, I was in the retail industry for upwards of about 20 years, holding different positions uh, in both Canada and the United States. I started Retail Profit in 2009. And in the intention at the time was really to bring a longer term perspective to an industry that, to my mind, uh, was was fatally short sighted. And given the exponential nature of change that I saw occurring in the marketplace, I felt that there was room for a narrative that stretched further into the future and really created sort of a sense of story about where we had been, where we find ourselves now and, and where we were going as an industry. I've written two books on the future of retail. One, a 2013 book called The Retail Revival, Reimagining Business for the New Age of Consumerism. And then my second book, uh, which came out in 2017, called Reengineering Retail, The Future of Selling in a Post-Digital World. And in addition to writing and consulting, I'm also the retail columnist for CBC Radio Canada, and I do a monthly syndicated column on changing consumer behaviors. That is a lovely list. So I will put a lot of those into the show notes to steer them your way, Doug. So let, let's, I think the, the fun part would be to talk about this particular article in BOF as a sort of a conduit 
and a, a light motif around which we can talk a lot of a lot of other things. So, in in your viewpoint, Amazon, they're doing amazing things. They've got quite the valuation. I haven't seen what happened recently, but all the same, on balance, doing great things. Sixty percent of the online world, eating up thirty percent of the online food world. Lots of things are going in the right way. Yet you're negative on them long term. So why don't you lay out for us your negative viewpoint on Amazon? So, you know, and I wouldn't even necessarily characterize my my position as being negative. I I mean, I'm I'm not looking at this. I'm certainly not um, uh, looking at this uh, as, um, you know, communicating that people should be out now shorting Amazon. I agree. No, no, no. I'm with with you on that. I just bought some stock this morning. Total disclosure. Yeah, this is this is not about that. It's it's really that I, I you know I began to sort of um, and this is around the time that Amazon was just crossing the trillion dollar threshold in terms of its market capitalization, and I uh, I was I was thinking you know I was kind of reflecting on a lot of the language that's been used to describe Amazon, and we hear about their innovativeness, we hear about their disruptiveness, we hear about their uh, unyielding focus on customers. Uh, we hear often about their iconic founder, who now happens to be one of the richest men in the history of the planet. Uh, their growth trajectory, uh, you know, just just this, their their overall sheer dominance. And and it occurred to me that thirty years ago we were saying very very similar things about Walmart. And, and frankly, if you were to step back 30 years from, from Walmart, you could argue that we were saying extremely similar things about Sears back in the day. I mean, Sears was certainly no less innovative or dominant, uh, but, but certainly Walmart in its day was a juggernaut. And, you know, I started to kind of, in my first book, I wrote a lot about the history of Walmart. And Really, you know, between 1962 and the 2000s, Walmart opened 4,393 stores, large stores. 3,000 of those stores were opened after 1990. Walmart was decimating their competition. They were a brand that if, if, you, were, if you were a brand, you had to do business with Walmart. Right. It was almost, you know, a, a foregone conclusion that if you weren't doing business with Walmart, you were you were going to lose out, or you'd have to go head to head with them. Um, they they were well known for their innovation, particularly on back end operational systems. They really became the benchmark for operational efficiency. So I just started reflecting all, on all of this, and 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 reflecting too on the fact that today, when we look at Walmart relative to competition like Amazon, Walmart is struggling. And I'm not saying that they're, you know, on death's doorstep, but it is an existential battle for Walmart now. It's quarter to quarter. They are struggling to shed 60 years of skin and move themselves into the digital era. They are um, becoming, I I would say, less of an empire uh, as they were before, and they're becoming much more of a network business. uh, and, and a lot of that is because in 2015, Walmart experienced its first ever sales decline. You know, it's something that, that everyone thought was unimaginable. So what I started to do was sort of look at some of the ways in which I think that Amazon could become vulnerable to some of the same conditions 
that gave rise to Walmart's eventual weakness. And I, and I do believe that, that there are some of the early signs of, of those vulnerabilities. Mm. At some level, I have two thoughts. One is the nature of retail and the margins. And then secondly, the niche of distribution that we're in. So on the first point, the challenge is scoping out your piece of the pie typically for a brand and what you're going to take as part of your commission for getting it out to the customer. The second one is within the niches that exist, there, let's say there there might be the department store, then there could be Pharma Prix and the Pharma or, you know, like a Bootsy, CVSE, and then you've got the Walmarts, then you have the everything store. And, and I'm wondering to what extent that trying to be everything to everybody is also one of the challenges that Amazon has. Yeah. Well, I, I, I agree with you. Um, and, you know, for me, um, in, in, in along the lines you, you just mentioned, I think that that strategy has never, has never changed. I mean, right for, if you read Brad Stone's book, the everything store, it becomes quite clear that right from the beginning, Jeff Bezos imagined Amazon being uh, a place where a consumer could literally at some junction in time go and buy anything, anything and, and all with uh, just an, an extraordinary level of convenience. And what was striking to me is that Bezos was recently quoted in an article and he said, um, quote, in our retail business, we know that customers want low prices and I know that's going to be true 10 years from now. They right. want fast delivery. They want fast selection. And my take on that is, look, he may very well be right. Um, however, you could liken this in many ways to, you know, John Antioco at Blockbusters saying 10 years from now, people are still going to want to go to the video store on a Friday night and choose their, their videos for the weekend. Well, uh, that, that, that sounds like such a, a, a quaint, you know, uh, archaic notion now. Um, but, but, you know, 10 or 15, 20 years ago, that we, we all might have agreed with that. So I think it's one of the things that I think Amazon is potentially open to here is what I call parallax blind spots. And a lot of it has to do with um, a theory of organizational imprinting that organizations become susceptible to that basically says the era in which you are most successful has a tendency to freeze the organization in terms of its outlook on the world. And we do this not just as organizations, we do it as human beings. The era of our lives in which we experience the most success uh, has, a, has a tendency to make us want to repeat the things that made us successful, right? It's just, it's just natural that we're going to want to do the things that we believe gave us the best results. So for Amazon to say, look, 10 years from now, consumers are going to want exactly what they want today. I think that that could potentially become uh, an, ep an epitaph. <laughs> you know, that's mm. something you put on a, on a tombstone. Well, certainly... Uh, well, first of all, I put price on another level because, uh, you know, basically you even ask Warren Buffett, would you mind, would you like to buy this orange juice for cheaper? Uh, and, and even he will say yes. Uh, you know, I know what I mean. It's sort of a, a, a truism that doesn't do anything because the hard part is actually selling for more. 
and and the the but the notion of convenience um, is going to morph and in, inevitably evolve. And so, even if we in ten years' time will want to be convenient, have convenience, the ability to provide the right type of convenience, because of course there are elements like logistics. Uh, the weather, the, I mean, there's so many other elements that make convenience and, and that will shift. But are there other areas that you see? I mean, I, cause my angle is is that they're trying to do everything for everybody and anybody trying to do every, anything for everybody is never going to please anybody. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, you, you know, um, I look at, I look at uh, Amazon and, and first of all, I mean, in, in the interest of full disclosure, I'll say that I am, I'm a huge Amazon customer. So am I. I'm a, I'm a prime <laughs> member. Um, yeah, me you know, too. The, I'm, I'm the nemesis of my postman because it can barely, uh, you know, get everything I'm ordering into my mailbox. Right. So, you know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not taking the approach here. I'm not looking at this argument from the standpoint of someone who is is anti Amazon, right. um, but but I will say this: I think the the experience that they have developed online, yes, it's uh, it's extremely efficient, it's very effective. But but we know a few things about this. We know first of all that when consumers go to Amazon, and they use Amazon as a search mechanism for product, we know that in almost sixty percent of all cases, the consumer knows exactly what they're looking for. They already know what they want. They just want to know if Amazon carries it, and if they do, great, one click, and, and I've got it. It's on its way, and that's fine, but what, what we also know is that people don't go to Amazon to discover products. They don't go to Amazon to, um, uh, to, to have a, a great shopping experience. They go to Amazon to buy things, and those are two fundamentally different behaviors. Mm-hmm. Those, those are, and and in my opinion, that leaves the door wide open for disruption. Uh, I know, and I speak to companies uh, virtually every other week, uh, startups that are working on becoming a, a far more experiential platform for online shopping. Because with all due respect to Amazon, essentially what Amazon is is a, a digitized version of the Sears catalog on steroids. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's basically catalog shopping. Uh, there's nothing inherently immersive or interactive about it, um, but it's effective and it's efficient. But I do believe that we right now are sort of standing on the cusp of a new wave of online shopping and technologies, frankly, that could redefine what that online experience looks like. And so, yeah, I think there's an opportunity for other retailers and and, um, and startups to attack Amazon on the basis that it's not a great shopping experience, right? It's, it's very good at what it does, but it's not a great shopping experience. So let's take a look at their four retail in real life uh, concepts. Uh, which would be Go, the bookstore, the pop-ups, and uh, the four-star. Those are the mm-hmm. four that I know of. Have Have you had a chance to go into any of them? And, and what's your opinion about their in-real-life version of uh, stores? I have. Um, you know, essentially, uh, you know, um, first of all, Amazon is a very uh, sort of obtuse company. Um, they're, they're out outward facing strategy 
or, or what looks like an outward-facing strategy is often not exactly what they're up to. Um, you know, Amazon bookstores, for example, in my opinion, have absolutely nothing to do with selling books. Books were were simply the easiest, and I have been to, to the Amazon bookstore. Um, books were simply the easiest category for Amazon to launch a physical store with. That, that pure and simple. They didn't rely on, you know, myriad of vendors. It was all uh, relatively easy stock to merchandise. Um, it, it, you know, they, they, they basically had everything they needed to launch a bookstore quite easily. I, mean, by, the, by, 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 I think another element, though, is that they kind of owned that market as opposed to food or clothing or you know, any of the other areas. It's something they dominate and they have a lot of statistics on, too. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely right. It's a category they know, uh, you know, better, better perhaps than any other online seller. So it made it very easy to take that into a physical environment. But but it takes about three minutes in an Amazon bookstore to realize that the real purpose of that store is to sell their technology. Their technologies are the heroes. Um, they They desperately needed the ability to get their technology into consumer hands and let them try it and play with it. Uh, a la Apple store. And so the bookstores are really technology stores in, in my estimation. In terms of Amazon Go, I think what, what, what Amazon has been able to do with the Amazon Go concept, and again, this is about a 2,000 square foot, I'll call it, um, let's call it uh, fast casual food and convenience items. Um, Cashless. But you cash cashierless stores. You walk in, scan your scan your mobile app, take what you want, and leave. Essentially, what they did was uh, they created in the offline world what they had done to the online world with one-click ordering. I mean, it's hard to remember now, but ordering stuff online prior to Amazon wasn't exactly always easy. No. You know, <laughs> you you had to go through all these uh, you know rings of fire and and uh, forms fill, filling out forms, entering your credit card information and. You know, it was very, very convoluted. Amazon took all that chaos and put it into an extremely streamlined experience where you could literally buy with one click. Now they have applied that same thinking to the offline world. And essentially, I think they, they have created a new benchmark for what convenience looks like. Um, the, the problem with it, of course, is, is scalability because the cost of one of these stores, given the raft of technology they need to to uh, uh put one of these stores uh, into action is, is tremendous. But they're going to, I think they're going to solve that two ways. They're going to open a lot more of these stores uh, by some reports up to 3000 mm -hmm. in, in the U S alone. And I fully believe that this is a technology that they'll also license out on a very select basis to other companies mm -hmm. uh, in, in, in sort of do an Amazon web services play with the, with the patented elements of the go technology. Um, so, you know, um, they're, they're, they're definitely, I, I give full credit to Amazon for uh, the, the level of exploration, experimentation, and risk that they take. Um, uh, but, you know, again, we have to sort of look at each of these things and, and really ask, like, what's the underlying strategy here? You, so you don't look at these stores necessarily as a sort of a bonobus, real online plus offline it's 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 a different concept they're using offline to get their alexas and dots and kindles in the hands 
Yeah, I think it's. I think it's. A, I mean, the 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 holy grail for Amazon is if a customer uh, carries a Fire Phone, has a Fire TV, and has an Alexa device sitting on their you know cabinet in their family room. That's the holy grail, and it, and it, and it is because Amazon, to my mind, is is fundamentally not a retailer at all. I, I believe Amazon is a data and technology company mm-hmm. that happens to sell 500 million odd products. And when you start to look at Amazon through the lens of a data company, a lot of things start to make sense. Their strategy starts to make a lot more sense. I'll give you an example. When Amazon bought Whole Foods, there was um, there was tremendous speculation in the media around why. Why was Amazon making this $13.7 billion acquisition to buy uh, to buy into a category that is notoriously ruthless, notoriously difficult uh, um, uh, because of cold. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, you know, skinny margins, uh, brutally competitive, uh, tremendous uh, legislation, handling regulations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Grocery is a hard way to make money. And, and yet Amazon was intent. I mean, Whole Foods was not the beginning of Amazon's foray into groceries. They've been knocking at the door of the grocery industry for better part of 10 years. So why? Why was it so important? And my belief is that you can tell an awful lot about an individual or about a household by what they put in their grocery basket. So I believe first and foremost, Amazon looks at the grocery industry as a data vacuum. This is this is uh, you know just an enormous cache of data about consumers and why Whole Foods because those consumers are remarkably similar to Amazon Prime customers. When you look at the demographics and economics of that segment, they're virtually the same customer. So it, it's a data play, to my mind, first and foremost. And with all that data, Amazon becomes remarkably more agile and remarkably more capable of cross-marketing other products to those families once it develops this understanding through their data. The other piece of it was distribution. Amazon, you know, you don't, you don't have to look at their P&L very long to understand that last mile distribution is still a headache. Um, and this acquisition gave them 426 mini distribution centers, essentially in the backyards of their most important customers, their prime members. So when, when you start looking at grocery through the lens of data and distribution, again, all of a sudden it starts to make sense. You know, it's like Amazon's playing chess. While the rest of the retail industry is is trying to calculate their strategy, you know, according to checkers, it just doesn't work. Cool. So, I'm I'm a brand guy, and so I, I would let's say I would be supplying Amazon with brands, or trying to figure out whether I can control my own destiny and and have my vertical, so it's my shops at Akeels or Apple and so on. Mm. I I've always frowned heavily or tried to figure out what is the notion of a retail brand uh, in other words you know let's i mean uh, uh, excusing the fact that of course they have their own products at this point but at some level you know when you had these walmarts that would do their own no no name brand generics which becomes their brand ultimately how do you look at this concept of the retailer brand so, I mean, for me, a retail brand is really 
um, uh, it, it can accomplish a few things. And, and I think at, at one time, uh, for consumers, retail brands were more important uh, because what a retail brand did, if you were, let's say you were Macy's or Marshall Fields or, you know, um, Bloomingdale, Selfridges, the list goes on. Your, your, what your promise to the consumer was, was this. There's a vast universe of products out there, many of which you don't even know about. But we do. We have the intel. We have the buyers that are roving, you know, the far corners of the earth and bringing back all the most remarkable things and curating them into a selection that aligns with your tastes, your preferences, and your values. I think that was the promise of a retail brand. And it was largely, it was based on this notion of scarcity, that the consumer had scarce access to products. They had um, precious little access to information. And so the consumer, being as vulnerable as they were, would look to brands to sort of sort out the chaos for me, make my life easy, put the products that I need around the corner or at my local shopping mall. And I think what we're experiencing is now consumers are saying, look, um, the chaos is pretty easy to sort out. You know, in fact, uh, you know, it's, it's fair to say that consumers in many cases now have a better bead on what's happening what's emerging, what's trending, than a lot of retailers do, you know. So I think the value of a retail brand now is shifting. It's it's morphing and it's changing. But, you know, another point on brands, which which I think is, is important, and I think you'll, you'll um, you know, I think you'll, you'll find this uh, interesting given your, your slant on brands. Right now, Amazon is, is inviting brands onto its platform. Right. And of you know, it's, it's saying, hey, come one, come all. The days of retail distribution are over. There's no need for you to give up all kinds of margin on the way to a direct relationship with your consumer. You can, you can t- sell to your consumer directly, and Amazon's the platform that will allow you to do that. And that sounds like a really good deal. And brands have literally been tripping over themselves to get onto Amazon and begin doing that. And, and uh, you know, some, some really, really high-profile brands. Nike said they'd never sell on Amazon. Well, guess what? They're selling on Amazon. But the catch is, in the background, Amazon is trademarking brands, house brands, uh, like like there's no tomorrow. Of course and, they are. And a lot of these brands, they're just they're leaving dormant. They're just parking them. Well, we've seen this, my, we've seen this movie before. I mean, it's the Walmart thing played out again. It, it, it absolutely, absolutely, and 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 I would argue that it it it's it's sort of it's Walmart playing out again, but it's Walmart now in the digital era, right? And which, much better, which, right? Much better data, which makes it so. even more dangerous. Yeah. So. You know, we saw this just a couple of weeks ago where uh, Amazon has been selling bed and in a box products uh, through one major supplier who's done very, very well on Amazon. But uh, after a period of time and after a period of analysis, Amazon determines that, hey, you know what, this is a category that we can and should play in. Uh, we have all the data from our manufacturers' sales. We have all the data from the consumers that bought these products. So now, with a really with an unfair advantage, we can go now into head-to-head competition with our own vendor partner. But 
it gets worse because we'll just undercut them by a few hundred dollars and we'll promote our product now as being the number one recommended recommendation on Amazon. Case closed, right? So I think that there's going to be an awakening on the part of brands where they wake up one morning and say, my God, we're, we're research rats in Amazon's laboratory. Of course. We're, right? we're, we're, all we're doing is, is we're availing our proprietary data to Amazon so that they can wipe us out. And, and if Amazon begins to experience a defection uh, on, on the part of brands, if there's a point where brands say, you know what, we're out, if there's, this is a zero-sum game, then I think that Amazon ceases to be Amazon. And Amazon can say that, you know, Amazon Basics is a, is a huge product category for uh, across different uh, uh, kinds of products. But the fact of the matter is, if you took all the brands off Amazon, it wouldn't be Amazon anymore. Well, but then you get the morphing into the decathlon, where previously they used to sell everyone else. They got to figure out the business, and then they made everything basically their own brand. Exactly. And so I, what, I th- what I see is a very... Um, adversarial relationship yet again coming back in which was the types of relationships that brands have had with Walmarts and all these 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 buyers that are just hideously trying to get to the last you know teenth of an inch of an inch of a percentage to fight for this end cap and this position and it and mm-hmm. it just it, well let's say that the customer is supposed to win out because they get the low price but ultimately the brands don't make money they can't invest in research their brand goes south and the retailer is going to be based on what? So I wanted to ask you, since it has 60% of the online market and it's got these stores, which seem to be more about customer acquisition with regard to a specific category, how do you see Amazon trying to pursue further customer acquisition considering their position? Um, well, I mean, Prime is a, is a huge, huge driver of their growth. Uh, you know, if you look at the statistics around Prime, and I think that, what, you know, what, what Amazon is proving is that membership eats loyalty for breakfast. You know, everyone's got a, a loyalty program, some points program, or they're asking people to carry a card in their wallet. And what Amazon did was it said, no, 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 it doesn't work that way. You pay to be a member with us, much the way you would with Costco. And for that, we give you a very defined value in return. Uh, it's a tangible value. It's not you're not collecting nebulous points that you may use at some later date and never keep track of. So uh, the program has been tremendously successful. They uh, were up just in the last quarter. Their membership was up 47 percent. Uh, it's to the point now where if I'm speaking in a in a room where there are let's say 500 retail executives and I ask how many of them are prime members, I'll say safely it's 90 to 95 percent of them now are prime members. The renewal rates on Prime are staggering; it's in the 90 percent range, and 82 percent of U.S. households, and I'll repeat that, 82 percent of U.S. households with incomes over 110 thousand dollars a year are prime members. So prime is prime is the Trojan horse. I mean, if they can get prime into your home, then, you know, the whole universe of value that Amazon represents unfolds. Um, how do they continue to grow? I think that there's a long runway for acquisition of new customers through prime. I think Amazon video is also proving now to be 
uh, a potential draw uh, as Amazon is nominated and is winning more and more Golden Globe and Emmy Awards for uh, their content. That brings people to Amazon. And as Jeff Bezos said, every time we win a Golden Globe Award, we sell more shoes. There's a direct, there's a direct correlation. And probably red carpets. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's a web of value. And that's what I think retailers need to understand is that Amazon is, they're not a retailer, but they're really more of a data technology and media ecosystem that consumers get drawn into and frankly, it becomes very difficult to leave. You know, they um, they do a very good job of keeping you within that ecosystem and continually delivering enough value to uh, to make you want to stay. So I think the runway is long. I mean, if, if I'm saying, you know, I think Amazon could falter, I'm saying that within a decade, it wouldn't surprise me if we started to see headlines that were... Uh, that, that we're now saying that uh, Amazon was having tremendous problems with their vendors. They were having tremendous employee satisfaction problems, and those were translating into customer service problems. And that, um, you know, their, their model for how you do online retail was being now challenged by other upstart companies. Those headlines wouldn't surprise me. In fact, uh, you know, I'm sort of waiting for for that to be the case. Well, we have seen a few of them and, and those mirror very much the types of position I have, you know, and I was talking about because of this notion of brand, the role of the employee satisfaction and engagement within that, because they're the ones creating the customer delight also. Mm-hmm. But the other one I thought, uh, which is important is that once Bezos is no longer at the helm and how does one do the kinds of ballsy decisions that he has taken without somebody who incarnates the brand at the top. Because as soon as you bring in a, a smart CEO who's been brought up from within, but he doesn't own 50% of the company or 30-whatever percent of the company, yeah. then uh, the gonads get cut off by Wall Street. Well, that's, a, that's a great point. Loss of founder and loss of the founder's mentality. And, and Bain & Company's done you know copious study around this that – Founders have a unique energy. A founder has a uniquely crystallized vision for the company. They have a laser focus on on the front lines of customer service. They drive decisions to the front lines. They empower people to make decisions. And as you point out, they also take risks. You're not you, you know you don't have to go through five different layers of executive to get a decision. Bezos gets an idea uh, or someone gets an idea and takes it to them and off they go. And if you lose that, uh, all kinds of bad things can happen. We saw that happen when, when Howard Schultz stepped back for a sure. short period from Starbucks. Apple. We saw that happen when uh, Walmart lost Sam Walton. They started making a lot of decisions that would have been in conflict with the ethos of Walmart. Um, so we've seen this, We've, as you say, we've seen this movie before. And, I mean, look, Bezos doesn't look like he's going anywhere. Although, he, he certainly... hey, listen, you already had a, whatever was, a heart murmur or something one time on holidays. Oh, did he? Yeah, that was about two years ago, two or three years ago. Oh, oh my God. Well, I mean, if, if nothing else, that at least proves he is human. Yeah. Which is, which is probably a good thing. Uh, he's not animatronic Jeff, which no. is which is good. Yeah. Um, but, it, you know, I think that the bigger risk right now, rather than, you know, losing him to... Um, uh, some some sort of tragedy would really be or just losing him to distraction. 
he's he's very very passionate about many of the businesses like the space uh, travel business that are not uh, core let's say to Amazon's current business model and so if he were to simply start splitting more of his time to these other businesses just even losing that connection to him could i think um, be trouble so yeah, absolutely. The founder is key. Do you think Washington Post is a, a plus, a compliment, a distraction? Um, I, I think that I think that the Post is sort of a recognition that, on some level, what Bezos recognizes is that Amazon is a media company. You know. Uh, I, th- I think that uh, the foray into the post, I think it did a couple of things. I mean, first of all, it, it firmly established Amazon in the media world, but I think it also gave them an important connection to to Washington, um, hmm. and, and, you know, and, and to that environment. One which, side of which, Washington. What's that? One side of Washington. One, one side of Washington, that's right. <clears throat> but... Um, you know whether or not it's it's going to prove to be a plus or a minus. I, I think we'll have to uh, you know see over the course of time. Well, I wanted to pick up one comment you made there, which is the media part, and mm-hmm. and sure it it has media, and, and as you said in one of your speeches, stores can become media. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that's what you said. One of the interesting things when I look at an Alibaba versus Amazon is that they come from social media, or at least they have a very strong social component to it that's tied in with a credit card, as opposed to a Facebook or Google, which is more tied into your email and therefore the person rather than the credit card. Mm -hmm. Then you have Amazon that's tied into the credit card, but doesn't have social. Amazon is not. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Um, and and what's interesting when you compare Alibaba and Amazon is that it's almost as though you're looking into the brains of Jack Ma and Jeff Bezos, and and it's almost like a right le- right brain left brain kind of kind of thing. I mean, Alibaba is um, is is a f- I, I view it as being a far more whimsical, fun, social. Uh, you know, kind of, uh, um, how do I put it? Um, it's just, it's just it's got it's a personality. More, it has a it's personality. Got personality. Yes, exactly. And and anyone that's followed Jack Ma knows that he's a character, you know, and he he really celebrates that aspect of Alibaba and Singles Day is a is a tribute, if you will, sure. to that kind of social shopping coming behavior. up soon. Amazon is not that. Amazon is is analytical. It's it's a, it's based around efficiency and effectiveness. There's nothing social about it, and 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 I think that's completely by design. Again, it's a reflection of the founder. Um, so the battleground now is sort of playing out in India, in my opinion. Um, you know, India is the prize now. And we're seeing Walmart sort of circling the wagons and making acquisitions in the market. Amazon is is clearly intent on the market, and Alibaba, of course, um, is is vying for it as well. And it's in that market that I think all of these companies are going to bring. You know, you, you can't bring a knife to that gunfight. Let's put it this way, right? You need to bring your best options. So we'll see the full character of these businesses play out in the Indian market. And frankly, whoever wins the Indian market. 
North America is an afterthought. Well, there is a question. You own India. Absolutely. Naturally, they also have the indigenous uh, properties there. Last question yeah. for you, just quickly, Doug, and I know your time is precious. We got a lot of technologies that are involved in retail, and so you must have your head spinning constantly with new new initiatives coming along, whether it's on the front end or the back end. Which uh, would you say over the next two years be the types of technology which you expect to see, let's say, front of wired or however you'd like to frame it, uh, in terms of keeping the or making the retail experience optimal? Mm-hmm. And there's so many different ways to approach it, you know, and the technology question is always difficult. Um, you know, which one is the golden goose? Well, I think to some extent, I'll give you, first of all, I'll give you my, my non-committal sort of political down the line answer. I think it depends on what you want to do as a brand. I think if you determine as a brand that you are all about high touch, concierge levels of service, creating deep emotional connection with consumers, then I think as you look around the landscape, uh, a different set of technologies is going to appeal to you in order to, to activate that kind of experience. If you're all about quick, easy, 24-7, self-serve, you know, building a cognitive connection around efficiency, then a different set of technologies will probably bubble up to the surface. So you have to start with the design of the customer experience first. However, if I'm just talking about my own personal beliefs, I think a couple of things. Um, I think on the front end, I believe that as we rapidly move toward a more general, robust form of artificial intelligence. I believe that in, in 10 years, just as we rely today on Google Maps or Waze or any other navigation service to, to get our bodies from point A to point B, I believe that as consumers, we are going to rely on digital virtual assistants that we subscribe to that are um, uh, that that are completely um, uh, nonpartisan in in terms of you know they're not provided by Amazon or they're not provided by Walmart but these are services whereby we can program a piece of artificial intelligence in whatever likeness we want but that we will talk in a very natural way to these devices or technologies to receive advice on virtually every aspect of our consumer behavior, whether it's uh, getting insurance for my car, setting up a new bank account, booking a flight to Los Angeles, they will be the go-to in the same sense that we wouldn't dream of setting out on a road trip without turning on our navigation. Um, And I think that will be commonplace. And I say that for two reasons. I think, number one, consumers need it. Number one, consumers are already doing it, mm. but we're just doing it in sort of a clunky kind of, um, you know, key, keyboard-driven uh, mm. way. So that's number one. But number two, the technologies themselves are, are, are ramping up so quickly and the capabilities are growing so fast. I, I'm, I'm really betting on AI to change the whole consumer dynamic. Um, so that would be my, my consumer facing pick. And then on the back end, I think blockchain and I know blockchain is sort of like it's it's become a you know buzzword bullshit. But I mean, it, it, it really has the capability to alter the nature of the supply chain, for one thing. And secondly, on the cybersecurity front, I was speaking at a cybersecurity conference a couple of weeks ago. 
And that's the topic of conversation. How can decentralizing information around about customers across a distributed network, wow. mm. how could that potentially uh, make people a lot safer in terms of their privacy and, and the integrity of their data? So blockchain on the back end, AI on the front end, and that's my that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Beautiful. Well, I was thinking you were going to go with blockchain and supply logistics, but you caught me by surprise on that one. Doug, uh, wonderful, juicy conversation. Uh, yeah, and once again, uh, total transparency. I own stock in, in Amazon. I'm an Amazon Prime member like you and so positive on so many areas. But let's say that we're here to to keep, uh, keep a vigilant eye on the future for these retail uh, mastodons. Absolutely. Doug, thanks again for coming on the show. Put everything in the show notes and great to have you on the show. Been a pleasure, Mentor. Thank you. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on MinterDial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please like the handy Facebook button. Or better yet, head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. But first, relax to Joss Sachs's Finger Paint. Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way to rid me of the gray. You mentioned in your lack of self-security Oh, I wouldn't care about the art form As long as you would feel warm Wrapped in canvas, hold me tightly Slowly we would paint a lover's portrait With all your favorite shades
Hello, this is Gary Chachot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.